WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest was the executive producer and creator of the Modoc animated TV show for Hulu, as well as co writer of Marvel's Modoc Head Games, and is co writer with Patton Oswald on the upcoming Minor Threats from Dark Horse, Jordan Bloom. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you guys for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, now we'll ask, we'll ask the first time guest question. What are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Um, I remember reading in a high chair only because I have photographic evidence of it, but I do remember <laughs> the comic is um, reading a Mark Grunewald Captain America with the Scourge, which is a weird thing for like a two-year-old uh, <laughs> to be reading, but I loved it. Uh, and it was kind of nonstop after that. I remember my, my mother taking me to the library and I just kind of beelined it for the comic wall and was grabbing up my, my Jack Kirby superpowers and, uh, you know, those Claremont X-Men's and, you know, it's never stopped. Now, did you have a, a parent maybe who was, was reading comics and that ha- that's how it got into your two-year-old hands in the high chair or? Yeah, it's funny. My, um, my dad, uh, uh, immigrated from from Israel um, when he was five and learned English through comic books. So it was kind of always a big thing for him. So then he got me into it at a young age and, and we would kind of read together. He was an Iron Man daredevil guy. I was, you know, Batman, Superman, X-Men, Spider-Man. So we would just kind of trade and then he would take me to the stores and, and kind of encourage that habit until it kind of ran on its own. <laughs> and it's funny, you, you know, the scourge who was wiping out C-list supervillains seems to have set you on a path. It, it, it's indicative of where things go from there. It is full circle. <laughs> Coming back to do it in minor threats, and you know, funny enough, we on uh, on Modoc we did a whole episode about the bar with no name, mm-hmm. which are all and a ton of Grunwald characters, uh, like Ten Pin and and. Um, a few others. So we, uh, we, I think we named the high school um, after uh, Mark on that. And I will, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but I will also be on a, a Mark Grunewald panel at Comic-Con uh, this year, um, which I was asked by his, his widow, uh, Kat, because she uh, heard me speaking so highly of, of that run, uh, which is so imaginative. I think he's one of the most underrated um, writers and also just important figures in comics. You know, Mark Grunewald was the one who put together the Marvel Handbook. And I think that was a real way in for continuity nerds like myself who you would just read about these characters and want to kind of seek out those issues. And, you know, that and who's who I used to buy all the time. And it kind of opened up all these doors to stories and continuity I would discover later, you know, when I'd find those comics. My first comic, Who's Who in the DC Universe, number two. Hell yeah. That'd be great artist too on that. Like Kirby, McFarlane, Kevin McGuire. It was a who's who of artists as well as characters. Uh, uh, Stephen Bissett did a bunch of the Swamp Thing stuff. There's, yeah. it's Did you buy the omnibus that just came out? No, because I had tracked down all of the single issues. (laughs) And the minute I finally tracked them all down within... A couple of months, they solicited the omnibus because that is how it works. When you finish your holy grail, it's like, here's the trade. Always. Always. Well, on MODOK, we had, um, I had a spinner rack and I filled it with um, a lot of the Marvel handbooks. And, you know, the, a lot of the writers who weren't maybe as familiar with, with Marvel lore as myself or Patton would just flip through them in the morning and we would find these characters and, concepts and you know the the Seagramites uh who we had in episode three were just mm-hmm. kind of came out of flipping through these things and, and us needing a, an alien <laughs> you know to use in our, our show so it they were amazing you know to have and and um I hope they bring them back because I think it it really creates this kind of interactive world with with the readers I, I feel like we're, we're due for a uh for an Ohamu refresh especially you know I mean, just new X-Men stuff alone in the last few yeah. years. Yeah. We've got to update all the Krakoa files. Exactly. Uh, on that. <laughs> oh, man. 
But uh, yeah, so you are here primarily to talk about uh, Minor Threats, which is a four-issue Dark Horse series launching August 24th, as of this recording, uh, with uh, co-writer and your uh, old MODOK pal, Pat Oswalt, artist Scott Hepburn, colorist Ian Herring, and letterer Nate Picos. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis for the listeners. Uh, it's hard out there for a supervillain. Not the world conquerors, chaos engines, or arch nemeses, but the little guys. The ones who put on uniforms, knock over jewelry stores, and get tied to poles. Things are about to get worse. The psychotic stick man has murdered Kid Dusk, sidekick to Twilight City's premier crime fighter, the Insomniac. The Insomniac's teammates are tearing Twilight apart, turning it into a police state, desperate to capture Stickman and stop the Insomniac from crossing that final line in which he may never come back from. Caught in the middle are these small-time C-list villains, finding it impossible to walk down the street without being harassed by these heroes. With a bounty on Stickman's head, former villain Playtime decides to assemble a ragtag team of villains to take down the Stickman kill them kill him themselves we need a shorter summary that's a long no okay thank you for reading that <laughs> uh um yeah that's that is minor threats issue one uh pretty much it's uh a love letter to those kinds of characters i think pat and i have always dug the kind of working class villain you know the the guy who just uh you know puts on a snake costume goes out to rob a jewelry store so he can pay his alimony or, you know, grab a beer at the end of the day with the other kind of lower level supervillains at the bar. And um, I've always liked that kind of crime fiction as well. And that's kind of where the story came from was, was kind of marrying, you know, what we love about superheroes and stories we feel like we haven't seen yet um, mixed with a deep love of, of kind of noir and, and crime fiction. Uh, you know, in, in reading about, you know, reading other interviews and stuff leading up to this, uh, this, this started as a, uh, as it was going to be a Batman pitch on Patton's part. Is that, uh, is that correct? Yeah. It's kind of a hybrid of, you know, we, we were both cooking up similar stories, uh, you know, focusing on these, these types of characters. So Patton had this Batman pitch, um, of kind of, you know, what happens to your calendar man and such when the Joker holds the city hostage and Batman has to kind of work his way through uh, the criminal underworld to get to him and how whenever these megalomaniacs take over uh, the city, how it becomes hell for the little guys. And I love that. And then I had written um, or kind of broken out the story that I always wanted to do that was also about these these sort of characters um, and, and, you know, one of them trying to go straight and getting pulled back into this life. So we, we basically took these two separate projects and, you know, blended and, you know, started from scratch uh, and, and, and kind of came up with, with this world. And, and a lot of that also was Scott Hepper and our artists uh, designs. Cause he really had this idea of um, the setting of twilight city of, what does a world look like that's endured 60 years of comic book kind of superhero continuity and, and um, you know, especially the bad side of town. So he really started to kind of create the world that these characters inhabit and like, oh, there was a big fight with a kaiju and they just, the heroes left it, you know, it's not their problem. And it decayed and became a skeleton and people just built housing around it because life continues in the city. And we really loved, Scott's idea for that and it became uh, a big part of the story which is these characters trying to make their way across the you know the city uh and and they're kind of encountering um all of these elements that that exist whether it's a, a time bubble that you know that's there in, in five blocks of the city or this kind of gun or whatever it, it really created a, a kind of uh you know, one night uh, survive the city sort of story. We, we talked a lot about the warriors kind of thing. You got to make it from this point to that point kind of thing. Um, and it's hell night for supervillains with all the superheroes cracking down and the insomniac being unhinged and trying to track down a stick man. And it's like, it's the little guys going, you know, we know this world better than anyone else. We're sick of, of being stuck in this rut, in this place, being at the bottom of the totem pole. Why don't we go kill the stick man ourselves and we'll collect the bounty and we'll put an end to this, all this chaos that he's kind of created. And it's, you know, it's these underdogs biting off more than they can chew. And, and I love those kinds of, of crime fiction stories. So that's really the genesis of, of where uh, minor threats came from. 
And uh, how about in terms of, of gathering the entire creative team? Obviously, you and Patton have a history, but in terms of like Scott and everybody else coming into the picture. Um, so Scott, we had worked on uh, Modoc Head Games and um, we had such an amazing experience with him. Scott has such a cinematic eye for storytelling and um, is so good at big action and then really kind of small character moments and his acting is, is phenomenal. Um, so we really wanted to kind of um, embrace his storytelling and, and, and write things that excited him. Um, and then Scott brought in uh, the rest of the team that he's loved, you know, working with um, who've been phenomenal, the colors, the lettering, especially the colors, you know, we, we talked a lot about these characters kind of represent the death of the silver age, bronze age. If you look at a lot of the, the, the D-listers in Spider-Man or Batman, they were kind of created in this era that was a little mm -hmm. more innocent. And we wanted to kind of set the story up at the, you know, we had the death of the insomniac sidekick Kid Dusk and it sets off this new world, you know, the world changes uh, in a moment. And um, we, we, we wanted that to be reflective in the art as well. So there's flashbacks to kind of, uh, you know, the, the good old days and, and they're colored differently than mm -hmm. this kind of darker, almost, you know, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, 80s uh, world that, that these characters are being dragged into, that they don't fit into as well. So we wanted that contrast in the art um, from the stuff that's flashbacks to the stuff that we have kind of going on now. Um, so yeah, the colors, again, the lettering, creating, you know, kind of different speech bubbles for each of the characters and their voices. It's, it's to me the most fun part of this is the collaboration and uh, you know what what everyone brings to it and, and it really just giving the book its own personality. And then uh, how did it find its home at uh, Dark Horse and follow up to that? Uh, did at any point Jeff Lemire send you any threatening letters or messages tied to bricks that said back off on the superhero deconstruction guy around here? <laughs> we haven't gotten any any threatening letters from Jeff Lemire, but we definitely were inspired, you know, by him. It's very hard to kind of create, uh, you know, from the ground up superhero universe. I think like he's done it, and the Radiant Black, you know, universes. I think really landed. So we were looking at those, but we also, you know, were talking about how this is a unique perspective. These guys never get their story told, right? Like. These are the guys, I think, as you mentioned earlier, like get webbed up in the cold open so that you can get to Dr. Octopus. You can get to the big mm -hmm. bad. And um, but you never see the world from their point of view. So we loved the idea that there's a huge Batman story going on. You know, basically, <laughs> uh, you know, our, our version of Batman, our version of Joker, you know, that would be a huge crossover, big event in the line. And we're not seeing it from either of their perspective. It's just happening on the, the kind of fringes of, of, of the story. We're following the little guys and how they're affected and they've got a plan and we're gonna, we're gonna stay with them throughout the story. So that was really exciting to us. And I think that's what excited Dark Horse um, and Patton I know had written within the Black Hammer universe. Um, so I had a relationship with uh, Daniel Shavon, our, our, our editor, who's been fantastic. So. Um, you know, I know there's, there's some curiosity of us doing something original and, and Pat and I both were kind of most excited about telling this story. So, uh, you know, Daniel's been fantastic and, and, and lining up, um, amazing, uh, artists for us, a cover, uh, variant cover artists. I mean, having Mike Mignola <laughs> be, uh, our first variant cover was, was surreal. I think, especially to Scott, who was you know, so influenced by his work. And, um, you know, we've got a, we've got so many more I wish I could talk to you about right now uh, <laughs> that were just a dream wish list that Daniel was able to put together. So Dark Horse has been not only the perfect home, but has been such great partners in, in getting the book made. Glad to hear that. Uh, now, in terms of, of sort of your working relationship with, with Patton, you've already done, you know, you've done a comic together, you've done a TV show yeah. together. You know, what was, is there one moment where, where you guys kind of clicked and you decided you just, you know, you want to keep working together, you know, whatever happens with, with MODOK, you know, this is a partnership we'd like to continue. Yeah, it happened actually before MODOK. Um, I met Patton when I was um, 
like a staff writer, I think on American dad. And I had created a show with one of the um, showrunners and we were discussing who would be the perfect voice for this character. And, and Patton was kind of my first choice. And we reached out to him and, and he just got it. And uh, it was also superhero related. Uh, so he spoke the language and he said, Kirby crackle, he got it, you know, that we had that shorthand <laughs> and he came on board and we pitched it and we sold it and it didn't go. Um, we got to do like a pulp presentation, all this fun stuff. So I got to spend a lot of time with Patton, but the show ended up not happening. And we kind of stayed in touch over the years and we'd run into each other at golden apple and, um, uh, you know, other nerd circles. And, and, um, when I had met with Marvel, um, and they were talking about projects, uh, immediately I thought of Patton and we, we brought in MODOK and, and have been kind of nonstop ever since in developing stuff. And there's a whole bunch of other projects I wish I could talk about, but they are, uh, you know, it's, it's, we have a, we are working in, in several original, you know, uh, superhero universes and a few very established ones um, currently. And, and it's just been, you know, we just get each other's voices and we, we, we work so well off each other and it's just a lot of yes anding. And um, it's been, you know, a pleasure when you find that, that voice that matches up, you know, so well with your own. What is, when you're, when you're writing together, what is the division of labor like? Um, well, our favorite thing to do is just meet up in person, which was a little difficult during uh, the beginnings of Minor Threats, but, sure. um, or we'll Zoom and, and just talk the story out and talk about characters and, you know, really kind of break out the, the big beats and plot and visuals and the things that we're excited about and then talk to Scott about, you know, what, what does he want to draw? Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of hammer out an outline um, that uh, I'm a big fan of just kind of having like, layout of every page when it comes to comics so you know how to pace it and you know kind of what you're allotting to tell these scenes and then we'll divide them up and each of us will go off and write a few scenes and trade them back and forth and by the time you know we we hand them in it's kind of hard to tell where you know who wrote what and where one thing begins and one ends so it's it's just highly collaborative and and again it's just kind of trading these things back and forth until we feel like oh it's, it's ready it's there we've talked a lot already about sort of your, your love of, of uh, you know, in wrestling parlance, we'll call them the jobbers in uh, super villainy. But I, you know, I am curious, you know, who, what, you know, is there one character that has sort of your favorite rogues gallery of these types of villains? Yeah, I kind of go all over. Well, I feel like Spider-Man and Batman, I'd say are tied, mm. you know, I think with the best kind of, of B-list, C-listers, you know, I love that a lot of them are kind of tragic characters. And that's something we really wanted to add into Minor Threats is that, you know, in the first issue you meet, you know, Playtime, who is is our main character, Frankie, who's trying to go straight. And she's got an, a daughter, a daughter she's estranged uh, from, and uh, she's trying to get back to her and, and kind of escape this life she's she was kind of pulled into by her mother who was a supervillain she was a sidekick to her mom so i've always loved you know that type of of character that is you know um yeah they might look like a goofy she's a toy based character you know all her, all her powers are very uh toy oriented but like deep down is someone with these very relatable you know wants and dreams and desires and um you know i've always felt like the Spider-Man characters and the Batman characters like Mr. Freeze, you know, they, they give you such a great tragic origin that, uh, you know, when you first see them, like, oh, here's a, a guy who's making freeze puns and, you know, uh, dressing his guys up, you know, in parkas and, and stealing blue diamonds or whatever. But you're like, oh, no, this all goes back to this, this, this love that was taken from him. And I think what we wanted to do in the series is, yeah, you meet Frankie early on, but uh, later, um, you know, you, we get to kind of unpack some of the other characters. You only meet kind of on a surface level in the first issue, and then we swap narration issue to issue. So you get to really understand who these people are. And again, the tragedies that led them to pick this life where they, they dress up in some gimmick and decide that like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So that's, I think some of the fun of the series is, is hopefully you 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 come in with these 
preconceived you know notions of who these characters are and then as the series progresses you kind of learn like oh there's a lot more driving them and i think the way that like sandman or you know rhino or or any of these characters you know mad hatter there there's something behind who these people are and why they chose this life have you read a lot of flash because that strikes me the the rogues are a bunch of blue collar guys and the first time I was saw Scott's work was on uh, Rogue's Rebellion, where you know the the crime syndicate is taking over the Earth, and the Rogues are like, "No, we don't want to throw in with this. We're just guys who rob banks." We... Oh, big time! I think the Rogues are the best example, probably, of all these. Even though I've probably read more Spider Man and Batman, um, you know, I've gone back to I think like you know Mark Wade and Jeff Johnson did such a good job, you know creating a culture around these characters that yes maybe they were introduced in the silver age as kind of throwaways or whatever but like these guys have a code and there's like an honor system and they all drink at the same bar and you know there's this this brotherhood sort of i think between the rogues that we really wanted to capture in in minor threats that like there used to be this time where you could kind of count on each other and, you know, will it be enough to get them through this this night? Because uh, they all are greedy and willing to turn on each other. And this kind of this code is kind of dissolved amongst them. But I always love that in the robes that they they there was like this like love between these guys. Like this is our lot in life and we've got to stick together. I, I would say, especially in like the early seasons of like the CW uh dc shows especially talking about the flash rose captain cold and heat wave sold me on that universe it's it's that that sort of like bosom buddy super villain relationship that you see with like i don't know black tom and juggernaut or uh pyro and avalanche yeah. it's like oh these guys are best friends but they're also evil i like that <laughs> i love that i think that's the answer i think captain cold gotta be the ultimate one of these villains right like if you had to pick one it's him. He 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 represents, I think, that world. You know, he's like, I got my freeze gun. You know, I got, I got, uh, I want to be taken seriously, and I want to get organized. And I think that's that's such a great character. Absolutely, he's the guy who won villains unionized. Yes, <laughs> which is another Mark Greenwald thing, because um, uh, he did the Serpent Society, which is another one of those groups, mm-hmm. and that they were the first villains to like be unionized and have health care and like you get arrested this guy's going to teleport you out it's part of the deal you're covered under us i, th- I always thought that was such a cool concept it, that that's yeah, Gro- Grooney, uh i'm gonna call him Grooney like like we're <laughs> friends but uh <laughs> you know he wasn't afraid to get weird during his very long run on cap you know i think you know, nowadays there's there's this this desire to tell a more serious story, you know, after Brubaker and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, which, you know, both great runs. But like mm-hmm. Ruel was like, let's let's keep that late 70s Jack Kirby party going and just, you know, let's make Cap a werewolf and it's fine and it's great. <laughs> I'm here for that. I love Cap Wolf. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what I love about comics. Like people always say, like comic bookie is a dirty word when you're describing a movie or this that i'm like to me it's the greatest way you could describe something mm-hmm. um you know i think there are are people who really get it like like your grant morrison's where it's it's let me take something that was this you know silly big sci-fi concept in the 60s 70s 50s whatever and i'll ground it with real emotion and real characters but let's embrace the, the craziness of comics of those kinds of stories and we really wanted to do that with minor threats where there's huge, big, insane sci-fi things happening in this city, but they're just background, you know, like that's just life uh, in the world of, of superheroes. And I think trying to, to make these characters as realistic and, and grounded as possible, but, but not shy away from, I think, the fantastic moments and elements of, of comics is what we wanted to do. There, there was someone, we got an a early review that said, like, we're one of the first... Uh, like post-Watchmen deconstructionist superhero stories that like is a love letter to the silliness and to the insanity instead of of kind of looking down on it or or mocking it you know I think we really leaned into it because it's what we love about comics 
Yeah, you know, I, I I joked about Black Hammer before, but you know, do do you have a, a favorite superhero franchise that exists outside of the big two? Uh, my personal answer for this, not a comic, but the Venture Brothers. Oh, that's a great answer. Hmm, my favorite super. I'll tell you what, I am loving the boys TV show. I think mm. it's one of the best. Um, you know, the uh, I enjoyed the comic, but the show I think is taking it to another level. Um, so that's that's one I've always really, really dug. Um, I think the Incredibles would be another one. Uh, very different tones in the boys <laughs> and the Incredibles, but I think that's the flexibility of the genre. One is for the children and one is the Incredibles. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what about your experience in TV has translated well to making comics and what was something that challenged you in in moving from one medium to another um i thought i think it was helpful that we we were really good at doing kind of long-term plotting and and kind of knowing the arcs and talking you know coming at it from character first uh views of of who is our main character what is she going to do to drive this where are we going with it it's all, all big TV questions as well you ask when you're kind of figuring out a season in a show um for me it was less like hard to figure out and more a fun tool I never had which was the the narration you know the, the um being able to kind of have a scene ha- happening in dialogue between two characters and then get to jump inside their head and hear a completely different perspective from what we're seeing and I think for us you know wanting to do crime fiction we wanted to lean in, into this being a neo-noir as well so being able to have voiceover and and you know kind of lean into the pulpiness of this world and these villains I think it was a great asset as a tool that you don't you wouldn't have you know normally in, in television so you just talked about character motivation for your lead and such when did Frankie come into the process because you kind of talked about that this was two different stories that were sort of merged into one when did she become the central figure of the piece um she early talks i think when we were kind of merging ideas and pitching things you know she was very much a slightly different character i had always wanted to play with um and you know the the idea of a second generation supervillain, a former sidekick was something i kind of had never seen before you've seen it with heroes but never villains so, um, you know, she was drastically changed from, from another character I had kind of created on the side for a different project. But, um, you know, I think just as a starting point, by the time we got into this series, um, you know, and, and we were writing the first issue, we were talking about who this is and what's, the, what's an interesting conflict for a character. And, and even though these are D-list villains, it doesn't mean they can't be good at their jobs, there's just other things that kind of got, get in the way of their success. And I think that's what separates Frankie from these other villains is she has a natural talent for this, not just her power, which is that she can kind of build like almost like a forge from X-Men, like anything she can imagine, but it always comes out in the form of toys. Um, but that she's got a mind for crime and for villainy and pulling off plans and thinking in the moment, and being spontaneous and the idea of, of being really good at this thing that has ruined your life was an interesting conflict for a main character where she's trying to go straight. She's trying to, you know, uh, get back to her daughter or work a real job, but the world isn't doing her any favors. And, you know, what if I do this thing one last time and then I'll turn my back on it, but is the temptation going to be there to continue it? That's kind of a fun story arc for, for that kind of character. So that, that really fed into, you know, building out Frankie's story for the whole, for the whole uh, series. Looking at uh, all the cowls that are hanging from uh, the bar, uh, you know, it, it, it occurs to me, uh, first, uh, superheroes love a pointy cowl or, uh, or domino <laughs> mask. And uh, I was thinking, you know, you recently went on uh, a pretty astute Twitter tear about uh, great superhero costume design. And I was I was kind of curious looking at all that, you know, what are were some of your favorite standard costume elements? I love when like the gimmick is really worked into the costume. So 
you know, we we talked with um, Scott for Brain Tease is another one of the characters in the show or in the in the <laughs> comic, and um, you know, he ended up like creating almost this like bike helmet thing that has a brain on the top, and you know, um, it speaks to an era too. You know, I think he's he's the most Silver Agey of all of them. He's very Riddler esque, you know, in in his costuming, and I think that was a big thing we discussed was not just the gimmick and the colors and the look, but like, what are they representing in the history of this world? You know, what era are they from? Cause we wanted certain characters to feel like they were, you know, nineties image characters who were, you know, kind of taking over for our past kind of silver Batman characters or Spider-Man characters. So, you know, I think a lot of that is, is who, you know, what do they represent in the culture of supervillainy and where they come from? But for me, you know, I think you always got to go with what, like, is it, is it green, purple? What are the, there's a color scheme, right? It's the, the, the primary colors are for superheroes and the secondary colors are for supervillains. Yes. So green, purple, so, and orange, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Green, yeah. Joker and Luthor, green and purple. Yeah. Per, yeah. And Perfect. Goblin. Uh, yeah. You got to lean into that. Those are, those are big rules. Another thing that Scott did uh, for these characters is, again, we talked about, like, you know, are they past their prime? Have they fallen a hard time? So he weathered a lot of their clothes or, you know, uh, you can you can tell some belts aren't fitting as well as they used to. Or, you know, there's they had to sew up a few holes or um, so I, I love that um, that idea, too, that that kind of feeds into it. But I don't know. I, the perfect, you know, it, it's got to go. The, you got to see the name, and then the costume's got to make sense. I think, like when you look at Doctor Doom, there's nothing else that could be Doctor Doom besides that Kirby, you know, uh, the Kirby art. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the, the key is. I'm trying to think of ones that I've loved. You know, um, something iconic, something unique, like Magneto's helmet. Is, there's nothing else like it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, always be tied to him. You can just show that Scott was always said that you need to be able to recognize a character by their silhouette. And I, I think that's a really cool way of thinking about costume design. It's gotta be graphic that you could see them in a wide shot and pick them out immediately. Mm-hmm. It, it's why that no matter how many other designs they do sooner or later, that Mignola freeze from Batman, the animated series is the one that people always sort of revert back to. Oh yeah. Big time. I mean, you always, yeah, it's, it's, it's gotta be that, iconic thing that you could yeah print in its simplest form and you can read it immediately so i'm curious do you have clear memories of reading a death in the family because it's obvious you know there's that's sort of in the dna of the the background plot or the you know kind of the overplot here and i just reread that story and it is freaking wild rereading it now that is a bizarre story it's crazy. Yes. I mean, I was at that age and I don't think I hated Jason Todd like the world did because I was such a young reader. I was like, it's Robin. Who, how can you hate Robin? I think like, you know, like they all kind of were one amorphous Robin to me, you know, Dick Grayson. I don't, cause I wasn't really reading Teen Titans. So it was just like, Robin's Robin. You know, I wasn't aware that like, oh, this one's actually a prick. Um, but <laughs> So I was heartbroken. I thought like the world had turned on me when they killed Robin. I was like, no, that's me, the reader. Uh, so I had very, and I think my mom even took the comics away because they were too violent. There was definitely like a, a purge in 1989, I think, where my mom had read an article in Time Magazine about how comics had gotten too violent and specifically DC. And she went through and took like, rightly so, like my you know, six years old. So she took like my killing joke, which I probably shouldn't have had, but she also took a death in the family. Uh, you know, Batman comics were dark in the eighties. And um, we, 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 there's a, there's absolutely a, an homage to it in, in the second issue of minor threats that we were like, just do this Apero thing. Like you're never going to escape this moment. And Jim Apero is to me, one of the greatest Batman artists of all time. So um, it was it was called out as a specific reference. But yeah, I think, um, you know, again, talking about this, 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 this thing that stemmed an article, uh, you know, for my mom to read, there was a death of innocence, I think, in the 80s of comics. And, you know, I love Watchmen and I love Dark Knight Returns and, and Death in the Family, Killing Joke, all these things. But there was this 
this turning point where people would be chasing that for years and maybe moving away from some of the fun of comics. Um, and again, those are seminal pieces of work, but it's more the, you know, uh, it's legacy that maybe didn't go in, in the direction that some people loved, you know, for comics. And I think we wanted to explore that in, in our series of, you know, again, these characters from a different era witnessing the death of, of what they believe to be, you know, their innocence. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about death in the family now. And I'm thinking about how people paid money to kill Jason Todd. And then they paid money again to read the comic. I know. <laughs> Insane. And a crowbar. What a way to go out. A crowbar and then a bomb. It's like overkill. And how they, they murdered poor Robin. But uh, now having gone back and read a lot of that run leading up to it, I was like, oh yeah, Jason had to die. <laughs> I changed my tune. I agree wholeheartedly with that decision. I don't think he should have ever come back, but that's my opinion. <laughs> So you know th these are these characters are all your 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 brain babies. Uh, you know when when Scott came back at, at you and Patton with with the character designs, what was something that uh, surprised you in the in the most pleasant way possible? I mean, they all felt like real people, even though one was in a giant snake suit and another one wearing like I said like a brain helmet. And, you know that they you could sense. A history there you know scott gave um brain tease this long beard and he looks unkept and it's a guy you know what if the riddler gave into his mania and we get to see his apartment you know in the second one it's like stacked newspaper it's like a hoarder you know it's like <laughs> that these guys are you know uh, damaged people or people with you know uh mental health issues that have given into their own mania that maybe started in an innocent place but like you know, what are their lives like when they go home? And I think those designs, you know, when you see them, they're, like you said, they're all weathered. They're all, they've all been through the shit, you know, in this world and it's taken a toll on them. And I think he captured that perfectly that these aren't, you know, um, you know, beginning of silver age, let's go set out and be, be, you know, the new bad guy on the block. These are guys who have been doing this for years and have, have paid the price. You've uh, you've mentioned in, in other interviews about what, wanting Twilight City to feel as if it's been around for for 60 years. And, you know, different characters are supposed to look like they were created from, you know, during different decades of comics. You know, uh, obviously sales, fan response, whether you and Patton and everybody else actually has the time to, to keep making, you know, telling these stories are all factors, uh, you know, and got, you know, also issue one hasn't come out yet. But, you know, do you feel like you have enough there story engine wise, story Bible wise for more minor threats if, if the stars align in that way? Yes, absolutely. We have about three major arcs planned, tons of backstories and, and spinoffs. And I think a lot of that, again, comes comes from Scott, where he'll just draw a character that we didn't even ask for. This There's one in issue one called Shit Eater, and he's just a humanoid fly in a leather punk leather jacket and i was like scott who is this? he's like ah his name's shit eater and i was like <laughs> okay i i, I want to write a spinoff of shit eater or major mummy or all these background guys you know we wanted it the world to feel lived in and then that each of these characters had their own life and and you'd want to go explore it with them and um you know scott did a great job with that and then also with twilight city if you when you read the first issue there's like you know weird alien residue or, or like giant killer plants that have died off and it, it kind of almost suggests that you know there was a huge poison ivy like infestation of plants but we're not telling that story but they're still there you know and I think there's so much suggestion of history um and that like a million foiled plans uh of villains that just reside or or have been left up or or you know or like uh, the residue of that just just left behind in the city that it's really fun to kind of go back and go well what did happen here that left this you know this goo with eyeballs uh stuck to a wall in this one panel or these yeah these giant killer plants that have kind of died off and are just you know uh living on these buildings or i mean stuck on these buildings so i don't it, to me every time i see a panel 
of Scott's, like a million stories get launched from it. I, I definitely loved the, uh, the, the, the one neighborhood with the kaiju viscera all over and the giant eyeball just sort of laying there in the road. And uh, also now, lo- now I'm looking forward to the shameless shit eater number one. <laughs> ah, I'll write that in a heartbeat. Come on, Dark Horse. Green light it. Let's do it. Oh, man. So uh, before we kind of move on to other stuff, uh, I'm going to throw in a question here from our grand Twitter inquisitor, Asimov Fangirl, who does ask, uh, if you had to form a super team with fictional or real people who have the same jobs as you, who would you pick? Uh, in in this instance, podcasting and comic book creating uh, count as occupations. Oh, so fictional characters with the same job as me. Yeah. Well, uh, number one easy is um, uh, Grant Morrison from Animal Man, also a writer, uh, and also right. a fictional character in the DC universe, who I believe was was killed in the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Who <laughs> uh, killed him in the War of the Gods crossover? Which is insane. Uh, but yeah, who wouldn't want to team up with Grant Morrison? Oh, J. Jonah Jameson, another technically, mm-hmm. technically a writer, uh, has written books about Spider-Man, as well as being a newspaper man. Um, I would love to team up with, with J. Jonah Jameson. I'm trying to think of other writers or showrunners. Um, wasn't there in Secret Wars 2, wasn't there like a, a was an attack on Steve Gerber? I can't remember who Shooter was mocking yes. but i believe yes. there is a a writer tv writer who turns into a super villain in the first issue of secret wars 2 and that's the deepest poll i'll give you today yes it see, was if it's shooter taking the piss it's either gerber engelhardt or starlin so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh i never i would have loved to have met steve gerber or the terrible character assassination of steve gerber uh <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, I, I work at a newspaper uh, by day, so I, I guess my super team would have, uh, let's say, Lois Lane, Jonah Jameson, Cat Grant, and uh, I, I'm trying to Jimmy, pick- right? You got to get Jimmy in there for the chaos factor. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. See, I, I, w- I was going to try and not go all Daily Planet and, and, and Daily Bugle, but like I want Ben Yurick too. So uh, yeah. Well, they have the best newspapers. I mean, I guess um, you could get Jessica Jones kind of worked for the Pulse, right? True, true. Yeah. Matt, where did uh, Linda Park work? Uh, she worked for whatever the paper was in Keystone. Okay. Uh, no, no, me, I, I'm an IT guy, so there, there's less interesting options there because most of them are hackers and not really IT yeah. people. But what people about Forge? Forge, you could. Oh, I I saw this and I thought about it, and the the best ones I could come up with were uh, Felicity Smoke from Arrow. Mm -hmm. That's a good Uh, one. Chuck from Chuck Bartowski from the TV show Chuck. He was a a Geek Squad guy. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Charlie Bradbury, Felicia Day's character from Supernatural, who started out as a IT person before becoming a monster hunter. And going into the, the real world and in a crossover here, Miles Stokes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is oh, an IT yes. guy for Dark Horse and a comics podcaster. Yes, love that podcast. I've been listening to that for years. Uh, I'll throw one more fictional one at you. Um, uh, what is this? Uh, Madison Jeffries, The Box. Yes. Ah. Also an IT guy uh, for Alpha Flight and, and the X-Men. Yes, good call. Noted robot lover, Madison Jeffries, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> he, went, he got sent to prison in Krakoa for loving That's a robot right. too much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a part of me was tempted to go with Oracle, but I, she's not really, I, you know. I, don't I, think, it, I think it works. I think Gal it works. Gal in the chair. That works. Yeah. yeah I, I, I mean. When yeah. The, I think when the Justice League satellite goes down, that's who they call. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then Babs. Absolutely. Number one yeah. choice would, would be Babs. Yeah. I, can, can I assign you Johnny Lee Miller, though, just so we can keep yelling hack the planet? <laughs> yes. I, I'll go with that. Again, for the chaos factor. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, kind of moving on to, to some other areas, you know, I was I was curious, kind of with the with the Modoc show, how much, I guess, advanced planning had you guys done before 
you know, word came out that there wasn't going to be a season two? Um, well, you know, it was, it was crazy because we were in production when all the kind of behind the scenes Marvel stuff changed, you know, basically our, our studio disappeared. Uh, so the writing was kind of on the wall. Um, and, you know, they were uh, great about us, you know, getting out there and, and getting to do our first season. But we knew, I think, w- way before everyone else uh, had. So, you know, by the time I think that news broke, I'd already been working on a show. We'd sold different shows together and had minor touch So, like, it was, it was a long time of us knowing. But it was kind of actually the best case scenario because, you know, obviously you, you, you mourn the loss of the show and, and the plans of what you wanted to do and all this stuff, um, you know, it, it, when it happened, but then by that time we all kind of moved on with our lives. So by the time the news broke, um, we had all moved past it, but the, the internet had just learned about it. And it was like kind of this beautiful wake for it on, on Twitter where people were kind of tweeting about what they loved and their favorite moments and being sad that it was gone. So it was like a really nice way to say goodbye to it. Uh, you know, it would have been, I think, harder if, like, we had learned that day, too, you know, but mm-hmm. we had already kind of moved on. So it was like, oh, one last nice kind of celebration for the show and the fans of it. And, you know, I think it had, it had really found its fan base and, and you know, had found the people who really dug the tone and the, and the fun of it. And, you know, um, uh, it'll always be out there in the Marvel multiverse. So if they ever, Dr. Strange ever wants to open a portal to a bunch of puppet <laughs> people, uh, it's there. Uh, we got the designation it's in the there is a a person at marvel um in new york uh who has this excel file of all of the um multiverse designations you know number numerical ones and i was able to pick one out it was my son's birthday for for uh, our modok universe so it is officially in the marvel multiverse should anyone ever want to revisit it nice you, know, you mentioned the Seagramites earlier, and that was my favorite little deep cut in there. Cause I remember them from the one issue of power pack they showed up in. Yeah. And Hercules and power pack. That was about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you have a favorite obscure reference in MODOK? Um, I think two of them, I mean, getting master pandemonium in a show with demon <laughs> hands uh was really really fun because i was like i don't think wandavision is going to go there so let's go there um so that was a big achievement of mine uh as far as a bucket list of weird marvel stuff i wanted to play with and i always just loved armadillo so i was really happy to kind of bring him to life um just as a a fun weird again d-lister who i don't think has ever really gotten much love in the comics or media we were able to do give him give him a little moment to shine in his episode you know it's it's funny watching wandavision you know all the stupid like youtube fan theory videos were like when is mephisto going to show up and i'm sitting here like telling my son who was probably like nine maybe ten at the time like no you need we need to see master pandemonium and explaining to him about the demon with baby hands and then yeah (laughs) and and then getting to see that payoff in modok was just wonderful (laughs) I was hoping Sam Raimi would work it in somehow. If anyone's going to be amazing at pulling off baby demon hands, it'd be Sam Raimi. Maybe, maybe the next time we see Scarlet Witch. <laughs> Fingers crossed. More Master there, Pandemonium. There you go. Um, at what point, uh, if there was a point, uh, did you give up or consider giving up typing out the periods between letters every time you had to write the word MODOK in a script? Because I, ga- I gave it once in our show notes. <laughs> Uh, I was real into it for a while. Uh, and then I think I realized, uh, in the scripts, it was eating up space. If you've ever written a screenplay, Mm -hmm. um, every space, every line, um, is, is, is valuable real estate. Like there's a whole art to like bringing lines up and pages up that you spend hours and hours doing just so you can, uh, get it to 32 or whatever you're shooting for. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I realized uh, it, these periods were not my friend in, in the script mode. But anytime I would talk about them on online stuff, I tried to treat Modoc with respect and, and put his periods in. Sure. Yeah, no, that's each of those periods is a half a character. That's that's that is valuable real estate. Absolutely. So I, going a little bit farther back here, 
because uh, this is something, uh, you know, that I, I, I'm, I'm particularly fond of. You were the executive story editor on season five of Community. Um, I, I guess first, what exactly did that role entail? Well, all of those titles are just um, titles that are made up by the WGA to just like have different levels on what okay. you're paid. No, you don't have any like different like a staff writer a story editor or you know they're all just writers on the show okay. <laughs> uh so i was a writer on community uh and um it was uh it was a blast it was chaos it was um you know getting to work on one of my favorite shows and um you know getting to see dan's mind at work and getting to be on set and and work with actors who I loved and, and um, write a crazy sci-fi episode uh, where we put people in Zardoz costumes and, and you know, uh, the whole Meow Meow Beans thing was, was a blast and, mm -hmm. and got to work with a, uh, you know, a fantastic uh, director uh, who I had read his Scud, the Disposable assassin comic growing up so he he brought me in uh my own trade paperback sign uh, rob did rob Schwab. Mm -hmm. uh so it was like a dream you know um you know it was crazy hours it was like always you know trying to get the scripts ready in time for table reads and shooting and this mm -hmm. but like you kind of fed on that chaos it, it made the show work uh in a weird way so it was uh it was a blast and there was uh, it was a fantastic writing staff and um i had worked with chris mckenna on um american dad he was the, the writer that when i was a pa you know handed my my feature off to his agent and got me started and signed and uh it was him and, and eric summers was another writer uh who i'd loved uh working with on american dad who were who were good friends so it was getting to, to be with them again before they launched their uh insane marvel career writing uh all the spider-man and ant-man stuff so um it was it was a great uh experience uh especially uh being a younger writer um you needed that endurance for a show like community sure uh you know and, and i was thinking specifically of of the episode app development and condiments uh which it's it's, it's in my top 10 from the show but, you know, I, I, I was curious if you had a, a specific kind of favorite bit that stood out uh, to you from that episode. Um, more like a memory was, um, you know, we had uh, Dan and, and uh, so we had written some of the stand up stuff um, that Joel was going to perform that was like, <laughs> you know, ones talk like this, but threes do mm -hmm. that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um you know, it was only going to be like five minutes less than that, like kind of in a montage, mm -hmm. but like, it was all written out. I think Dan wrote most of it and like uh, watching Joel perform essentially like a half hour set uh, multiple times and just nail it. And like, it was like three in the morning and he's just doing like a full comedy special uh, and then improvising and adding things. It was, it was crazy to watch and like a real, a testament to his ability as as a as a stand-up and a performer to just knock that out it was really cool there's there's one book like he treats that like like almost like one man show for most of it but there's there's a moment where like he's feeding off the crowd and all of a sudden he starts stalking the stage like a deaf damn jeff jam comic and just goes ah oh, shit what else <laughs> i think that's the moment yeah. that i lost <laughs> where it just it for yeah, a second it was great because I think we talked about we're like what are what's every cliche and stand up like let's hit them all, uh, so that was kind of the goal and then you know Joel executed it perfectly. Um, I I think uh, my my favorite bit from the episode is it's actually it's in the very beginning when they're introducing Meow Meow Beans and Jonathan Banks has this moment of quiet apoplexy where he starts to kind of rock back and forth a little and he gives the, you know, I fought for this country speech. <laughs> and I, I, of course, I can't remember now whether it goes right into the credits from that, but whether it did or didn't, it's just, you know, it, it, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's always stuck uh, with me. <laughs> that's just Jonathan Banks. I guess a person <laughs> was like, we're doing, we're doing what this week? I got to wear what? Like, I have all these, I, 
think I wish I still had them. I had all these like pictures I just took of him from afar of him in those like outfits that the the five or I forget what number it is they wear. You know, they have like these like futuristic gowns and they're wear they're like doing dances with these glowing balls and stuff. And I just remember him like just sitting off to the side, like, "What the hell is this? And what am I signed up for?" Uh, which was really fun because you know I, we were all breaking bad fans and then all of a sudden mike was there and it was like oh he is just mike in real life he's great he's fantastic he's this amazing curmudgeon but he was game and he went you know he he was up for anything but it was just always like kind of like how is he going to react to this this is going to be amazing i think sometime one time someone gave him a note and he threatened to punch them in the heart which was the greatest threat (laughs) i've ever heard uh so you know props to jonathan banks for just being the best for me it's gotta be stardaz which is the, the portmanteau of what he is at that particular moment. He is Stardust. Yes, I remember that costume uh, fitting and him coming out and being like, Jesus, what have we done? Uh, and it was like cold and we were out in the middle of the night, you know, filming that outside the, the set. And uh, it was, but it was, it was crazy. Like what they, how they really made this post-apocalyptic world feel, feel like it existed on these sets and, and, you know, uh, making him dress up like that is I can't believe we got him to do it. It was great. Oh man. There's, there's a lot of, of kind of guest stars in that episode, you know, Tim and Eric and, and, and Brian Pesain, Steve Agee, et cetera. How did Mitch Her- Hurwitz get involved? Because Kugler ends up having legs and coming back. Yeah. Um, I think it was like Dan, you know, had become friends with a lot of, of those sort of showrunners at the time, um, you know, cause there was like a, almost a reoccurring bit of having different showrunners guest star uh, yeah, over yeah. the season. And, you know, Mitch is a super, super funny guy. And um, when we are talking about who this character was like, it's, you know, it's Van Wilder, but he's like old, <laughs> older, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's like trying to be the rebel of the campus but he's you know he should be a dad or something uh so mitch's name came up i think dan you know pitched it and uh and it was just really fun to to write for and then it was great because we got to kind of go off and shoot this mini trailer with with mitch and i think he was having the time of his life because it was like the best thing for a showrunner is to be on a set that they don't have to run uh Mm -hmm. and they can just you know sit back and eat crafty and hang out and you know, and be one of the guys versus the person who's like, you know, world is melting whenever you're a showrunner, like the whole, everything's going to collapse. You got to get big the day. So it was like, he was just so like kind of down to clown and hang out. So it was, it was a real fun time working with Mitch. He was a great dude. It, there's definitely a one-two punch in, in, in uh, Hergwitz playing Kugler and then Vince Gilligan playing uh, the pile of bullets guy in the next episode. <laughs> Yes. And we were all like, we, I mean, like every week there's like, here's the creator of another show that is the best show on television. You get to meet them and pick their brain. So we were just geeking out. So now you've, you know, you've written Community, you've written Modoc, you, you, you've got Minor Threats. Do you have any stories in other genres percolating in your head? I mean, you just mentioned a love of neo-noirs. Do you have, you know, mm-hmm. a bumbling detective story? Do you have a, a horror comedy? Do you have a really earnest rom-com, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I love genre work. And I think, like, to me, the most fun thing is, is to, to not repeat yourself. Obviously, I've done a lot of superhero stuff just because it's my first love. But, um, you know, I, I, I have all of those and more, um, you know, big sci-fi stuff uh you know big action and and it's just um you know figuring out when the the right time is to do them and there's some in development in various stages and um it's that you know kind of bummer thing of like yes i'd love to tell you about five of them right now but i have NDAs mm-hmm. and things that don't let uh, won't allow me but yes i am i'm doing lots of of other kind of fun genre play or you know kind of mix i always like kind of smashing two together and i think that's to me, the appeal actually of minor threats is that it's got to feel like a Coen Brothers neo-noir as much as it's got to feel like a superhero, you know, book. So I'm always kind of having fun, you know, picking my two favorite genres and saying, well, I've never seen, you know, these two things kind of work together. Uh, uh, so, um, 
yeah, I've got some stuff. I've got one that I'm working on now. It's kind of like pretty in pink meets RoboCop. Yeah, <laughs> but like uh, a coming of age teen, you know, drama set against, you know, a gritty sci-fi uh, kind of action thing. So yeah, you know, that's, that's always the most fun is to kind of um, dig deep into these, you know, kind of genres and, and look what's come before. I'm doing a working on a kid's uh, movie that also has elements of Mad Max to it. So, you know, like uh, it's fun to kind of pull from all different places. Absolutely. And now I'm, I'm picturing a, a, a little kid do for you playing guitar on the hood of a car. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned kids already need you... more, more post-apocalyptic stories. I'm always saying that kids need this. They do. It's true. Especially now uh, <laughs> more so every year, but uh, you, you mentioned you're doing San Diego this year. Uh, you know, what is your, you know, obviously you're there, you've got a schedule and agenda, you know, what is your typical con behavior when you have, free time you know are you going through mm. bins of old comics you prowling artist alley you know what are what are you doing when it's when it's jordan's time uh i love nothing more than, than just going through those dollar bins finding those hidden treasures um that's my favorite thing to do put together runs uh i i have gotten it's funny i was always a collector in that i bought comics i saved them Mm -hmm. But I never was like a, a completist in a way that I think I am now. So I, I put together a full run of, of X-Men and every X-Men related comic ever, except maybe the first issue of X-Men, the, the Holy Grail. I'm still seeking out almost kind of when I get it, it's over, you know, so I'm kind of <laughs> put it off. Um, so I'm doing that, you know, I'm trying to put together runs, some early Kirby Fantastic Four stuff. I'm always kind of hunting um and then you know same with artist alley um I i've gotten really into kind of getting sketches and buying original art to be a little more careful of this time around as i you know uh will impulse buy sometimes way too much stuff down there that i have no room <laughs> to hang anywhere um so i love those those spots and then you know getting to see some some friends down there and um you know, that I, I haven't gotten or getting us all together. is kind of hard, but somehow when we're in Comic-Con, it's, it's easier, you know, we all have our panels or whatever. And then after we can go meet up at a party or something. So it's, you know, catching up with old friends and buying tons of back issues. That's it. That's it for me. I, I have uh, only just recently uh, found myself becoming a uh, bin digger now in uh, early middle age, but uh, I actually just went to a show uh, yesterday in, uh, here in Jersey. And uh, it's, it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm putting, I'm starting to put together, like I had everything in terms of uncanny X-Men from like 1991 on. Mm -hmm. And now I'm sort of get, going back and getting like, you know, deeper into the eighties, but it's like, I'm just going to buy like random weird shit. Like I, I was, uh, I went to something like a month ago or so. And I found the ALF annual that tied into the evolutionary war. And I decided that, yes. you know, it's a dollar book. This is my, this is my grail. This is, this is the thing that set me down the path now. Cause like that, that's when the dam bursts and the potato chip logic kicks in. So, you know, you know <laughs> what other weird shit can I find? So I'm like grabbing random issues of what the out of bins and, and love what the huge. Inf I love that book. That's such a good book. Yeah. <laughs> the, the one thing I stopped myself from buying, was uh, an issue of Radio Shack put out a comic called Whiz Kids, and it was just kids learning to use 1980s computers. <laughs> those weird oddities are so fun. Like some of the, I've, uh, I've there's all those Spider Man ones that were like given out in schools and stuff, or Teen Titans. Those are fun to, to pick up that are like after school special style mm -hmm. comics. I, I love, I like those too, like the weird oddities. Where you're like, I can't believe this was ever printed. I need to own this. <laughs> the, the one thing the Heroes in Crisis got right was taking the superhero they invented for the Teen Titans anti-drug special and turning him into a jet. <laughs> yes, that was a good inside joke right there. Uh, yeah, that, I like that kind of stuff. I, I mean, like you never know what you're going to find. And I think I've, I've definitely purchased more than I need. I'm, I'm having a real storage issue problem now where I have like a full shed uh storage shed 
uh, you know, at my house. And then I filled mm-hmm. that. And then now I have a storage unit that I'm also paying for it, that is also starting to fill with comics. And uh, I'm, I'm going to need to eventually curate, but um, I'm just buying more and more back issues because it's really fun. I also find it very relaxing to just go through the issues and, you know, just kind of zone out. There's, there is a, uh, there's a joy to the idea that you can recreate the warehouse from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with long boxes. Yes. That's uh, my wife's nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) Top men. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, What are you reading right now? All the X books. Um, not just because I'm an X-Men fan, but because I think they're all really good. Um, I, I thought Zeb Wells' first few issues of Spider-Man have been fantastic. Um, I'm digging. Yeah, I think the, the current Flash run, no one's talking about. And I think it's really good. Um, some great Wally West stuff. Um, I'm reading um, Nice House on the Lake, uh, which is, is really, really fun. Uh, or not fun, I guess, very dark. It's the opposite of fun, but it's great. Uh, and then, um, what else is kind of jumping out at me? I know I'm going to like forget it the minute I, I walk away, but I don't know. I feel like DC is kind of firing on all cylinders right now. Like also the Black Label stuff has been really good. Um, that Aquaman Andromeda yeah. I just picked up. I'm excited to read. Um, and... Uh, the new cap relaunch i've been liking uh both cap books um yeah there's just there's just too much good stuff like i'm i'm buying like 15 books a week i can't keep up with it i gotta cut down but it's like you don't want to miss anything well uh jordan this has been a fantastic time uh final question before we uh release you back into the world uh how can people follow you online you can keep up with minor threats and everything else that you have going on uh, you can follow me at uh, Bloom Jordan on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can follow Patton as well. We're both tweeting about it. Dark Horse. Um, Scott, I think, is only on Instagram. And he's hard to find, but we'll we'll force him out because uh, he's he posts a lot of art stuff and some of his black and white stuff, which is amazing. He's an incredible anchor too. So I would go find him. Um, but yeah, Minor Threats, uh, order it now at your local comic store or online. Uh, the cutoff is August 1st. And I think there's going to, they haven't announced it yet, there's going to be a, a final order cutoff cover uh, from an amazing artist that I cannot spoil. And, uh, and then the first issue comes out uh, August 24th. Right on. Well, Jordan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun geeking out with you guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom. Chris is on Infinite Earths and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. W-N-Q-A.